Welcome to the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, where at the end of this episode, I am going to lose one of my either Blu-rays or DVDs. My guest this week is a regular contributor to the show, Mr. Kurt Fitzpatrick. And currently, are you in, in Jersey City? Yes, I am. And I believe this is your fourth episode, and this is the first time we aren't doing a show based solely around one actor. Right. We've done yeah. Al Pacino, Paul Newman, and Steve McQueen. Yeah, we've had those three. So it's nice to have uh, kind of a different type of show. This one's about filmmaker debuts. It's a series of episodes I have where we look at the first, specify first feature length film by some pretty famous directors. So I sent you, I think, some like five or six options. Why did you choose this one? Oh, why did I choose this one? I don't remember what the other options were, but I usually choose the option because it may have some movies in it that I want to revisit. There is certainly, there's one movie in this that I actually went to see when it first came out. It's not the one that, it's not the kid from 1921. <laughs> Yeah, that's yes. a yeah. process of elimination. I make my decisions based on uh, there's some movies I want to revisit, some movies I've never seen before, and now I have a reason. to. I guess you never need a reason, but this gives me a reason. It gives me motivation to watch movies that maybe I should have seen before. Yeah, and that's kind of why I created the show to review movies that I haven't seen in several years that I purchased at some point, make use of my movie collection, and also just kind of see if my impression of the movie from years ago was the same as it is now. There is the odd situation where, believe it or not, I've bought a movie and it has sat on my shelf and I haven't watched it. That's not the case Actually, sort of true with The Kid. I hadn't watched The Kid before, but I had watched all of these other ones and some of them several times. And these, a couple, like a few of these movies in here are ones I've just been so excited since I started the podcast to talk about. So you chose some really exciting movies for me. I'm coming from the point of view that I like all six of the movies. Once again, this feels like a, a familiar theme where... I like all of them, and so the prospect of losing one of them seems pretty tough. Uh, I, I think for me, there there were a few that were very much at the top echelon, and a couple in the middle, and one that I think as much as I, I like it is probably not my favorite, the, the favorite to do that well from my list, but that's why right. I have a guest here to who might have a completely different perspective. I would say, yes, I like a couple of these are great movies. I like all of them. I think there's a there's a couple that might be a little shaky, at least one. And there's certainly a couple movies that the the future work of the director was better than the first one. That's what I find interesting about this is so, some of the debuts, they look like they're kind of the step out of student films or some right. Yeah. as student films and then uh, expanded to feature length. And there's other ones that are just phenomenal and the directors themselves are phenoms because they they did this work in their early to mid 20s and in one case late 20s and their yeah. first feature is either a classic or it should be a classic in in my opinion unbelievable uh, i'm just gonna mention the movies here because we're kind of skirting around it and we're gonna go in a chronological order from the year it was released. So Charles Chaplin was very much established in, in the early 20s here, but The Kid was his first feature-length film. He was known for doing all of these 
short films. And there's quite a story behind it. It's the shortest of the six that we're looking at, but it was his first feature length, but he was quite established when it came out. We are going to look at the famous Orson Welles feature film debut, Citizen Kane. Another guy who was well known and had this huge history in theater and radio, but his first feature length film, not without controversy, it seems like a theme with a couple of these, was Citizen Kane, which he made when he was, I believe, 24 years old and 25 when it was released. And a remarkable achievement. It it often ends up on the list of the greatest movies of all time. The last few cycles, because they, they were visited, I think, every five or ten years, Hitchcock's Vertigo has kind of usurped it. But there's usually a battle between those two as the, the greatest oh. movie of all time. Yeah. You, you know, I've never seen Vertigo. Oh, you haven't? Oh. No. Okay. I feel like in a, there's another <laughs> show I'm going to option I'm going to send you pretty soon here. So. And I do, I did recently purchase the DVD from the, from the Salvation Army. So I do have that DVD. DVD on my shelf, but it's recent. Except for the Steve McQueen show, we've had a Martin Scorsese movie on every, every time we've talked. And who's that knocking on my door? And I just want to kind of give the other title, I Call First. It's also known in some circles. That was the first fe- feature length film from Martin Scorsese. And so we're going to take a look at that one. Another one of these phenomenal stories was in the summer of 1991 when Boys in the Hood came out. And a uh, 20 20- Two when he made it, and then 23 when it was released. Year old director named John Singleton, youngest guy still to this day, I believe, to be nominated for Best Director at the Academy Awards. And so, this is a movie I'm excited to talk about. It was originally attached to another show, which didn't end up happening on uh, just different. It's called Los Angelinos, a show about different people in Los Angeles. And so, but I'm glad I was able to put it in, into this one, and it's gonna be interesting to to put this up against some of these other directors. The feature film debut of Wes Anderson, Bottle Rocket, is going to be discussed as well. It was also the feature film debut of the Wilson brothers, uh, Owen and Luke Wilson. And then we're going to end off with the debut of Sofia Coppola as a director with a 2000 movie called The Virgin Suicides. So those are the six movies. Great movies in there. It's just like, just listening to those. It's And listening to the, and just listening to you say that Orson Welles, even though I've heard it a million times, Orson Welles was 25 years old when he made Citizen Kane. Yeah. It's still, it's just still amazing. And I, I should throw in that Sofia Coppola, I believe was 27 years old when she made The Virgin Suicide. So yeah, so we, we have some pretty solid first efforts yeah. here. Yeah. This will be probably a tough one for assigning points and, and we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes here. Anything else you want to say yeah. about the movies before we get uh, into the reviews no i don't think so i think i'm ready to go perfect
the backstory of the kid is kind of an interesting one we might get into as well as the storyline itself, but uh, it was the first feature-length film by Charles Chaplin, and it did involve his cramped character. But he was in the, the midst of a scandal where he had married a uh, underage girl, and they were divorcing, and then she was threatening to do all kinds of stuff, including taking the kid away from him, and then it wouldn't be released or she would be taking all of the profits. And it was a movie that almost didn't happen, and they had to actually steal the film, go into somewhere in middle America to, to put it together and then do a final cut in New York. So his future ex-wife wouldn't get a hold of it. The fact that it was actually, it actually happened. That's the case with a few of these movies. The fact that they actually got released was a little bit of a miracle. Uh, so at the beginning of the kid, the opening title reads, a comedy with a smile and perhaps a tear. As she leaves the charity hospital and passes a church wedding, Edna deposits her new baby with a pleading note in a limousine and goes off to commit suicide. The limo is stolen by thieves who dump the baby by a garbage can. Charlie the Tramp finds the baby baby and makes a home for him. Five years later, Edna has become an opera star, but does charity work for slum youngsters in hopes of finding her boy. What did you think of the kid? Well, when we say feature film, it was a it was an hour and five minutes, I think. Okay, I had never seen the kid before. I just saw it today. It's certainly a movie. It's a hundred years old this year because it came out yeah. in 1921. So that's kind of cool. I saw a movie a hundred years later. I don't think, I, I understand Charlie Chaplin composed the music later. The movie was released as a, a silent film and then he composed the music later and I don't think the version I watch had his musical score it had like a weird like a sad score and I know that because I read I watched it on on Amazon with ads which were very very jarring to watch a movie that's from 1921 almost like an, an ad comes up for Geico or whatever <laughs> but um <laughs> <laughs> so I I would like to see it again with his musical score because this yeah. score was like kind of sad, weird, and not not great. I'm a big fan of the, the Chaplin movie, The Great Dictator. Mm -hmm. I think that's a I think that's a great comedy. I'm not sure what year that came out. Maybe about at least probably about ten years later. It was in the thirties. The thirties. Okay. Yeah, it was in the midst of of Hitler's rise to power, and it was controversial. That one. This one, you really have to adjust your viewing habits because it's a it's a, a silent film with tight cards you have to be pretty good at following what's going on even though there's not a lot of title cards I guess you, you don't have to read lips but I guess you have to be kind of intuitive as far as what's actually happening I saw a lot of the uh, Charlie Chaplin did he start out in vaudeville or he came from England right so yeah and he was it's, I recall his mother was an actor in in vaudeville and then he would kind of join along. He was so amusing. He kind of grew up in that world. Because it had a lot of, I think that Jackie Coogan, the, the kid, was also a vaudeville star as a kid. Right. And so I could see a lot of the vaudeville, a, a lot of the a lot of the stuff that happened, a lot of the, the scenes, like there's a fight scene that's kind of like a, <laughs> a, has a lot of physical stuff in it. And a lot of things like that would have, I think would have worked really well in the vaudeville stage. There's also a lot of times where, I'm not giving them a hard time about this because I know this was <laughs> like, I think they just invented the camera like the week before. Um, so th they're constantly looking at the camera, like looking, which yeah. so, and, but I, I don't know that's that they've, you know, they've probably spent, they've spent many hours on stage, you know, doing this. So I'm sure they're used to like, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's the equivalent of looking at, looking at the audience as some, it's a little jarring to, to watch it as a modern day movie watcher. It's a little bit, it's, it's a little jarring to see that. What's interesting is I, Citizen Kane is a couple points where people are looking at the camera. I was going to mention that. Yeah. 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 yeah I know. Which I don't think I noticed that before. 
before, but we'll get oh. to this in Kane. Yeah, I, I, I was very much aware of that in Kane. Because I've actually reviewed a lot of older movies with my regular guest, Tom Ratzlaff, and something that really throws him off is is how theatrical right. the acting is. He said right up until the 60s, like in early 60s, you would still get people kind of, yeah, yeah, this is a joke, looking at the camera type of thing and trying to tell the audience what to think as opposed to playing the scene in a naturalistic way. Yeah, he was he was quite critical of the Hitchcock movie Rebecca for, for that, which was really in kind of the same oh. era as Citizen Kane. So I love Rebecca. For 40 years after the release of The Kid, I, I can sort of understand why some of that was happening. I thought there would be quite a bit more of that than there was. I thought it had a lot of emotional impact as well I, I was I thought it was really sweet the way uh, Charlie Chaplin the I guess he's the little tramp how the little tramp adopted the kid and, you know he really loved the kid and then the, and then the kid was being torn away from him it was kind of you know it was kind of heart-wrenching that, that's a very famous scene they, they'll, they'll play them like uh, like the Oscars when they do a oh, really? okay. or a montage well, that was great acting you know yeah. it, was, it was great acting from the uh, kid from both the kid. Them, yeah. I think Chaplin's in was very well set up and that yeah. The fact that we're feeling this and kind of a, I mean, the music does help and it, it sounds like you, you weren't listening to the same music score that I was, but the, the music helps for that. But it, I, I don't find myself as bothered as I am with like, say, uh, you know, a, a movie like this is a movie I tend to pick on a lot, Patch Adams, where they will do a big music score and have this really melodramatic for your consideration sequence. Right. I, I thought the kid had earned that kind of a reaction. I thought it was was remarkable because there aren't a lot of those title cards in there. Right. Modern audiences, they have to actually watch it though. You can't you can't be looking at your phone or oh yeah, yeah. Or other things. You 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 have to pay attention to the film. It's not a long film, but it's a film that indeed you have to pay attention to, which is not necessarily the case with a lot of movies that we that we have now, unless they happen to be subtitled movies. Um, I thought so. The yeah. A lot of the bits in it were very clever. Like when a chaplain is underneath a blanket, there's a hole in the blanket. He just like goes through it and then it's a robe. Stuff like that was cool. All the stuff like on the roof. And I think from an historical perspective, it's, it's a cool to watch. If you've most audience members today, it might be a little bit difficult just because of the tension span that you need to watch it, even though it's an hour long, uh, (laughs) an hour, five minutes, but it certainly has some great stuff in it. And certainly from a, historical point of view mm-hmm. it's a great piece of work i haven't i have not watched i i i share a birthday with charlie chaplin i mean we, we oh, were right. born we were born on the exact same day but we were born april 16th and i have not seen a lot of his work which i should say i remember i watched i i rented limelight i thought oh this would be good it's charlie chaplin and buster keaton <laughs> i watched this movie like okay there's these old people where when did when did Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton start rolling out? <laughs> like, oh, wait a minute, this is like some old Charlie Chaplin. I don't want to watch this. I turned it off. <laughs> I didn't even watch the whole movie. It's not a bad movie, but you know. I was like, what's that? I was like, oh, this was no, this is the wrong time. <laughs> You you should check out if you haven't, and I have reviewed it on the on the podcast Modern Times. I should see that. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, check yeah. that one out. That, I think yeah. that his masterpiece playing the little tramp. It was also the last time he played the little tramp. I guess I I was in the right mood for it. I I, I kind of knew what to expect, so I, I was quite charmed by it. I smiled. I laughed a bit. I was amazed at the choreography and the setups. The whole idea of like how they they live in this 
shack, but they're able to feed, like look after each other and, and feed each other. And like the boy does a ton of cooking too. And they like, yeah, what to- were they, what were they eating? They were eating pancakes at one point, but at one point they were eating something. It was like some giant stuff out of a pot. It was a lot of, a lot of stuff. I was curious what that like, was. A gruel type of thing almost. Gruel, but yeah. Do what you have to do to survive. There's a whole sequence where this little uh, scam that the kid and the tramp do where the kid will go take rocks and then smash windows. And then uh, the tramp will come around and he's just conveniently trying to sell new yeah, that was cool. reinstall. Uh, and then they, they get money that way. And, and the beat cop is trying to... You know, trying to catch them in this is always a step behind. So I think one of like the on top of everything that happens, there's a seriousness to Chaplin. I think he's he doesn't really trust the government and authority figures and uh, the whole business of trying to throw the kid into an orphanage. Like he hit his mom, I believe, had a mental breakdown. He ended up kind of on his own for a little bit as a kid. So I think he really, you know, is very personal and very much relates to the kid. And he wants to protect kids in the same situation so a lot of what is done in there is to sort of make that point that you know, uh, it could be you know instead of like throwing a kid in an orphanage that there is a loving mother out there or there's somebody else even if they're you know not your upper class person who could be looking after these kids and finding a good home and and just the kind of that relationship i mean it it is a bit of a fairy tale towards the end there but i i really like it i like the satire of it as well mm-hmm. the only sequence and i don't know how you feel about this one that i felt yeah, like just... the angels dream this angels dream <laughs> sequence right it had heaven and hell in it. It was late in the film, and it's this is all Chaplin, like a, the little trap, dreaming about this. I, I didn't quite get why it needed to be in there. I mean, it, it's almost telling like this Adam and Eve story about original sin gain into heaven, and that, that's the only part of it that I was kind of like, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't quite sure know why, why that was in there. That was shot in a, apparently in a street in Los Angeles, which is crazy. That's what I read. Yeah. Also, did you see the? fly there was a fly in the in the the one i watched i don't know maybe it wasn't in all the versions of it but the one i watched there was a little fly flying around like in the projector i guess when they they transferred and then he and then he came back (laughs) he was a you know he was like that's you know more than a supporting role if you're you're coming back for a couple more scenes so so i was impressed by that that fly made film history i mean they haven't gone to the point in these films where they're going in and they're where they're digitally removing some of the imperfections because you'll get the hairs too and like a lot of older films silent films like the hairs will start to come in that would have been part of something that happened when they were filming it and then editing it it's kind of neat to look at those little so with some of these movies actually the the imperfections give them a bit of character i think and so oh yeah i thought that'll that'll be the case with another movie that uh that we're gonna be talking about here which isn't perfect but has a certain charm to it in its its imperfection so yeah anything else you'd like to say about the kid i think that's it yeah i wouldn't steer people away from it if you're interested in that era of cinema you're interested what the big deal is with charles chaplin i mean there are better chaplin movies longer chaplin movies to look at but this one has a place in film history. I think it is, you know, kind of an important film. And indeed, it's 100 years old this year. Yeah. And I think that uh, Jackie Coogan, it made him into a star at the time. And he, yeah. okay, I don't know all this history, but Jackie Coogan went on to, years later, was on the Adams Family TV show. Uncle Fester. Uncle Fester, yeah. But yeah. he apparently put some, he got some laws into place regarding child performers. So there's also that 
historical element. Yeah, the law is named after him. I mean, it's, it's like the typical story you hear with child actors. He's no longer as cute in the teenage yeah. years. And, and he, was a cute kid. he still wants the attention he's always had. And yeah. I think he got into some some difficulties, the usual types of difficulties. But I was glad to, to hear in looking a little bit into his life that, you know, towards the end of his career there, he was able to get the TV gigs and get a little bit more work. And of yeah. course, his name's in film history now because you just can't, not that he was treated bad on the chaplain. I think chaplain loved working with him, but I think in some other subsequent projects he was not treated that well so sadly please if you get uh, your hands on the kid check it out and hopefully not with weird commercials interrupting a hero and a scoundrel, a no-account and a swell guy, 
a great lover, a great American citizen, and a dirty dog. It depends on who's talking about him. What's the real truth about Charles Foster Kane? I wish you'd come to this theater when Citizen Kane plays here and decide for yourself. For several years, I've had the movie we're about to talk about on my 10 favorite movies of all time list. Sometimes I wonder if it's on my 10 favorite of all time because of those lists which say it's the number one movie of all time. So I can't say that any time I've watched Citizen Kane, I haven't enjoyed it and haven't admired what Orson Welles achieved at 25 years old. The story with Citizen Kane, which is as famous as the film, is it's considered the very first enormous Oscar snub. It had nine Oscar nominations and it won for screenplay only and it lost Best Picture to How Green Is My Valley, which isn't a bad movie, by the way. But Citizen Kane changed cinema in so many ways that it should have probably won Best Picture. But I wonder if Orson Welles himself, who by the time he made Citizen Kane, he had plenty of enemies out there. If what had sort of happened around this film didn't make him all that popular among the older Academy voters, and and that's why he lost. It's about essentially a group of reporters who are trying to figure out the last words ever spoken by one of the, the richest men in the world, Charles Foster Kane, who made his money as a newspaper tycoon. He says, Rosebud, as he dies. And the film begins with a newsreel detailing Kane's life for everybody. And from there, we're shown flashbacks of Kane's life from this reporter talking to different people who were important in his life. And we get to see him as a child and his rise to fame as newspaper man and then this media tycoon. The controversy around it is William Randolph Hearst. A lot of stuff about his own life, not everything, parallels the story of Citizen Kane and is a very not-so-flattering portrayal of him. So he actively tried to get Citizen Kane to not be released. And there were all kinds of people, Louis B. Mayer, all of these folks who were trying to buy the print of the movie so they could destroy it so it would never make it to cinemas. But still, you know, Orson Welles and, and RKO managed to release it. And it is, I'm sure it's one we're going to be talking, well, we, we won't necessarily be talking about it in 100 years, but I think it has its place in film history as much as The Kid or any of these movies as a very important and significant film. Whether it's the greatest movie of all time is a bit of a subjective thing, but I really, really like it. Orson Welles produced, co-wrote starred and directed. So the idea of an auteur, I believe, as far as American cinema came out of Citizen Kane and and what Orson Welles did with this film. So what do you think about uh, Citizen Kane and Orson Welles, if you want? I was was very tempted to say, it sucks, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but no, no. I had to preface that. I couldn't say that with a straight face. Well, we could talk. <laughs> we could talk for a long time about Citizen Kane. I have. I watched it this morning, but I have seen it many times over the years. I've probably seen. I don't. I don't rewatch a lot of movies. And Citizen Kane, I've probably seen now four or five times. Right. Probably for the first time, may have been like twenty-five years ago or something like that. Maybe more. And watching it this morning, I, I realized that it's an interesting movie to watch at different points of your life. I seem to get different things out of it because I think last time I saw it was maybe three years ago, four years ago. I th- Yes, I think Citizen Kane is a 
great movie. But yeah, many people consider it the, the uh, greatest movie ever made, which I think a lot of that has to do with it introduced some technical things that really hadn't existed before. Yeah. Like I think deep focus it's called i forget what the word is this the word for this is and i went to film school i should know this but that was also years ago where they would have like somebody be in the forefront somebody be in the background like the upstage downstage which they don't say that in movies that i'm saying it but anyway everybody would be in focus and apparently that was citizen kane was one of the first movies that did that also the structure of the storytelling is very was i it was it's it still seems very unique and it works really well because it starts out well it, it's it, it starts out with charles foster kane dying then it goes to a newsreel and the newsreel is i mean they don't have newsreels anymore when i was looking at today i thought you know that's like that that's like the trailer of of, of a movie it's like seeing the trailer of this movie where you're seeing the whole movie they give everything away and so at that point you know everything that's going to happen so then throughout the movie they can kind of use a shorthand sometimes in the storytelling it seems because they they already they already told the whole story and then the story is is told you know it's a reporter a, a reporter's going around talking to various characters and their flashbacks all being connected so it's really interesting the structure I'd like to take a look at the script the uh, screenplay mm -hmm. and kind of map out how how all that structure is because it's definitely not your, your regular i don't think it's like a regular three-act structure four-act structure it could be but just like i don't know chronological yeah. perhaps but but it's not chronological either you see oh, you see him when no. he's older and then he gets younger and by the way orson wells does a great job making himself look older and then you have you have how green is my valley where roddy mcdowell is a little kid throughout oh. decades, like, years and years and years somehow orson wells figured out how to make himself effectively look older yet in the 90s we had like forever young and some other movies where they had this oh uh mr saturday night where they had this re ridiculous old age makeup but in like 19 what was it 1941 so citizen kane was out yeah citizen kane you know 41 that was released yeah they filmed it in 40 but it was released in 41 and i'm a defender by the way of mr saturday night if you hear my review of that one and well you know, but, but i think up. black and white shooting in black and white right. was an advantage i think if it was in color we might have seen some of the the makeup issues but okay. i honestly had no idea he was 24 years old in the era i've grown up like orson welles was always an old man so it didn't seem the biggest stretch so i wasn't thinking of of him being in his 20s when and that's how right. good acting is it really is worth uh, he, the, yeah the acting the acting is really good like we were talking about old school acting there's a little bit of that in it not so much from orson welles though it's more like from some of the other actors the reporter the guy is uh like that guy he really resents who takes him away from his mother you know and we get some of the story from reading his memoirs or something like that you know this reporter gets a special honor of reading certain sections of the book dedicated to Charles but that guy was kind of looking at the camera every once in a while and like seeing my reaction yeah. that, that's where I, I noticed it the most I thought Joseph Cotton also did quite a good job as far as the young man to the old man. He's interviewed late in the film. I mean, he doesn't really look like the the young version of, him, of himself. I mean, you know, I suppose, again, in color, we might see more of the flaws of the makeup there, but he gives a, a decent supporting performance. There's also the actor who, like, the older the older guy who is running the newspaper when uh, in the beginning of the movie, pretty close yeah. to the beginning, where uh, Charles Foster Kane shows up to the newspaper, and the, the guy's constantly just going, <laughs> he keeps like blowing his mouth out like he's a blowfish. <laughs> 
Like this. <laughs> he keeps doing this. This the guy. That must have been his thing. He probably whoever that actor was. He probably got whatever movie he was in. He probably had to do that. <sighs> but I. But some of the some of the camera angles and things. I watch it. Like, I, I love the scene where dancing girls show up, and then he's dancing all the girls, and then there's a scene between these uh, two guys in the newspaper, and you just see behind them in the window, mm-hmm. and you just see like Charles Foster Kane dancing, and you see like it's like two scenes happening at once. Yes. You see in the beginning of the movie where Kane is a little kid. And and the parents are arguing. You see in the the window behind them, it's yeah. like it's framed. Little trust, little Citizen Kane is playing with a sled. But it's like, you know, there's like a framing of him in the window behind them when they're having a scene. That's really great. And there's a scene where, and of course the scene where it's the, the camera goes up and you see the billboard and it, it goes around it and it looks into the, it's like, how do they, like, how do they even do that stuff? It's unbelievable. Some other ones, to me, okay, maybe you aren't going to give it best picture, but how did it not win for cinematography and editing as well? I mean, I, I don't think there were many films that were using dissolves at that time, but he uses dissolves so well. But the cinematography is fantastic. There, there's a shot, again, at the beginning when he dies, he has a snow globe, which becomes a very important symbol, and it falls and breaks. And then we, from the snow globe, broken snow globe, we see a reflection of the nurse coming in as he's dying. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Like, that's impressive cinematography for 2021. And doing it in 19, 1941 is, is unbelievable. So, I mean, this is another movie. It's 80 years old this year. It, it is a masterpiece. But just like the, instead of having some sort of like standard transition from scene to scene or flashback or to flash forward, he blends the image into the shot. And it's just absolutely magic. I mean, I, you know, how could you how could you deny that this was a innovative film that like changed cinema forever? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I think it's great. I would say I would consider it one of the greatest movies of all time. Although I think Casablanca is a perfect film. It's Casablanca is also extremely influential. It's in the top five always. Yeah, the, put those two movies. And now, of course, we're talking about older movies because we're looking, we're, we're counting the influence that it's had over yeah. cinema. Wonderful movie. But Orson Welles often gets, not criticized, but it's he's also, he's often used as an example of somebody who started out with like the greatest work ever and then he never really recovered from that. But I enjoy the Magnif- Magnificent Ambersons and I loved Touch of Evil. Touch of Evil is yeah. a great movie. That's it. That's a fantastic movie. That's my other classic that he made. I reviewed that one. Reviewed the director's cut, which is the version that he wanted released with Tom on a, on my black and white episode. To see, I think that's what I went to see. I saw it in a theater. It was it was years ago, late nineties, I believe. Now, probably, yeah, that's right. probably yeah. yeah. And and so I I think it's just a notch worse than Citizen Kane, but. As far as like actors winking at the camera in in Touch of Evil, there there is a performance which is way worse than anything I I saw in The Kid or Citizen Kane in Touch of Evil. But everything else about Touch of Evil is pretty close to yeah. perfect. I think we are singing Citizen Kane's praises. You're mentioning the odd performance where they're kind of winking mm-hmm. at the camera there. Yeah, a little bit of that. I don't know, like if this was in the version you saw. I think the whole curtain call is unnecessary. Like we're at the end of the story, let's end the movie, where they they mention everybody from the Mercury Theater Company who's in the movie. I I like it actually. Do you? Yeah, I do. Well, first of all, it drives home. I like the line. I think it would be fun to run a newspaper. I I, I like that. Whenever I hear, I I like to use that line sometimes. So I mm-hmm. like that that line is like driven home. <laughs> driven home. It's basically the last line in the movie because then you see like he's the last actor introduced. I think it would be. Fun fun to run a newspaper. So I, I enjoy that we get to hear that more than once. Yeah, I did like yeah, it. Yeah. I, I liked it. I was kind of fascinated that the mother was Agnes Moorhead, who was the... Yeah. Uh, 
mother-in-law and bewitched. I didn't, for some reason, I didn't know that before, or I forgot. Yeah, I like it. I, I enjoyed that for whatever reason. <laughs> well, I told you the reason. It featured the actors, and that's okay. I mean, yeah. they from the theater tradition of doing a curtain call afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the other thing is, again, it's 1941, so let's not be too critical of the 80-year-old 80, 80 movie here, but, you know, some of the backgrounds were quite obviously projections onto a screen. Like, there's that, they're having, uh, in they're in that uh, Xanadu, which was that giant palace that he built, mm -hmm. basically for his showgirl wife which apparently was these yeah. things that, that Hearst was really upset at was it looked like it was a criticism of his his actor wife and they're having this big celebration and there's a pig roast and dancing and all this stuff happening a musical number but you could tell in the background that that the background there is not actually where they are there's a couple times like that so maybe a couple flaws in a pretty gosh darn good movie I would say yeah. so did his wife become a, did she become a better singer that's the that's the impression I got that she did learn how to sing and she became a better singer or, or did, did I get that wrong? I think other than that horrible notice that she got which got Joseph Codden's character fired and I think it was even more so just because he was passed out drunk and didn't finish the notice that's why he got fired but after that Kane owned all those papers right. so whatever town she was going to she was getting a great review because they didn't want to uh, mess with with Kane oh and okay the newspapers I don't think she had a bad voice, and we see that in the scenes. Like, I think that was a smart choice. That it isn't like some some ridiculous thing where she she can't sing a, a single note. She just didn't have uh, yeah. training and the sort of the the power and lung capacity to be that kind of an opera diva singer type of thing. She was a good enough singer, and I think you know if she was maybe operating in a different genre of music, she might have been a little bit better off. Yeah, she could have been a rapper, but it was years before that. <laughs> I think some of the political stuff kind of looked like looked like some recent events a little bit. It was like the idea of somebody who just has a lot of money running for office and he's trying to, he's his, you know, one of his, his main things was attacking his opponent and saying he's, he's going to have him arrested and that kind of thing was, that's kind of similar to some stuff that was happening in the U.S. Well, yeah. you could look at, like, it was about very much modeled on on Hearst. We, we now have, I mean, so many people we can draw upon as examples of this Rupert Murdoch would be another example of a yeah. mogul who uh, has very questionable values and has dipped a little bit too much into wars and politics and and that kind of thing and yeah Wells himself was completely opposed to that much like Chaplin was opposed to authority and I think that's what what Wells was doing here uh, Orson Wells co-writer was part of the Mankiewicz multi-generational Hollywood family but apparently the guy was a, a, a terrible drunk but he time with uh, William Randolph Hearst at his compound where all these celebrities would hang out and he apparently like remembered everything that happened so Mankiewicz you know had all this inside information and worked on the script and Wells tweaked it and together they they wrote the screenplay but and that's where they like use a lot of that stuff and that's what really infuriated oh. I guess the only other thing I would I would be remiss not to mention the jigsaw puzzle scene where he just he walks in and his wife's making an enormous jigsaw puzzle and he says, uh, "What are you doing? Jigsaw puzzles?" So that's another thing. That's another just uh, thing I like to say. And I forgot that I like to say that. So I watched it this morning. I was like, "Oh, a renewed interest." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's going on? Jigsaw puzzles? Because he's like reprimanding her for he probably bought her the jigsaw puzzle. I would he's think her because she's doing this gigantic. What are you doing? Jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> Like, yeah, what what else is she supposed to do? Oh no, don't worry. I'm having an affair instead. Oh, that's better. I thought you were doing a jigsaw puzzle. <laughs>
<laughs> so I like that. Nice. So uh, if, if for some reason you're a film fan who hasn't watched Citizen Kane, you need to watch it like right away here. If you're somewhat interested in the history of film and who this uh, Orson Welles guy is that we talked about, just as famous as Chaplin, but in a different way, you need yeah. to check out Citizen Kane. It was his first. It was his best. But I, I think it would be unfair to say this was his only great film. I think he was responsible for some interesting films for years after. And he was in the Muppet movie. And, and he was in the Muppet movie. And we didn't say what Rosebud is, so you can still enjoy that. So that's really a French magazine, huh? Yes, I'm afraid it is. Why? Now, how the hell did they ever get a hold of the searchers? The what? The searchers. It's a movie uh, made about, you know, about 11 years ago, and that picture of John Wayne is from that movie. I don't seem to remember it. Oh, you know, with uh, John Wayne. Oh, that other guy was in it, uh... Oh, what's his name? He, uh... He played Christ a few years ago in some movie, uh... I don't uh, think I know it. Oh, was he Swedish? No, no, American. Roland, Roland. Roland. Recent picture? Yeah, just a few years ago. It's a Western? Yeah. Oh, you mean Jeffrey Hunter? That's right, Hunter, uh, right, yeah. right. Oh, now you remember the picture. <laughs> no, I, I don't. <laughs> it was in color? Nope. No. No. Well... Oh, wait a minute. You know what? Natalie Wood did a small part in that picture, one of her first parts, you know? She, uh, she had a big scene at the end there with, uh, with Hunter, you know? She comes, uh, running down the desert over to Hunter, and she says, uh, on Mago, Martin, go on Mago. You know, she's, uh, she's trying to get him to, uh, to go, you know? Uh, I don't remember it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Mr. Good Picture. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, hey, there was this one scene in that movie that was a classic. You know, the, uh, the uh, chief of the tribe, his name is Chicatrice, Spanish for scar, you know. He talks English to John Wayne, and Wayne says, uh, you talk good English, somebody teach you, but real nasty, you know. And then when Wayne talks Comanche to, not Comanche, but Comanche, to scar, scar says, uh, uh, you talk good Comanche, somebody teach you, you know, but... Was... Sounds like a nasty fella. <laughs> Who? Oh, oh, the man with the scar, the Chicatrice. Indian. Yeah. Spanish for scar, yeah. Uh. Oh, he was more nasty than Wayne could ever get. But then again, he was the bad guy. Oh. There were a lot of nasty Comanches in that picture. Nasty picture? <laughs> well, then again, John Wayne could get pretty nasty, too, when he wanted to be. Oh, wait a minute. Was that the picture where Jeffrey Hunter's supposed to be trading Indian rugs, and he, he winds up trading for an Indian right. ride, and he doesn't know what to do with her? That's the picture. That's a good picture. Good. That picture was great. Well, I... Uh... I'm not used to admitting I, I like westerns. Oh, yeah? Why not, huh? Everybody should like westerns. Solve everybody's problems if they like westerns. <laughs> okay, I like westerns. Okay, then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was some picture. Some picture. As I state every time I talk about Martin Scorsese, I think he's the greatest filmmaker of all time. Uh, no disrespect to Charles Chaplin or uh, Orson Welles or the other filmmakers we, we talk about after this. The greatest filmmaker has to start somewhere, and it was NYU Film School is where, where he started. Who's that knocking on my door, um, which had a few different 
titles, but uh, another one I Call First, which was eventually released in 1967. Started off as this short film that got a lot of attention at, at NYU, and then he, he added some more to the film, and it appeared, I believe, in the, uh, a Chicago Film Festival where uh, the late, great Roger Ebert happened to catch it and became an enormous fan of Martin Scorsese and gave this, this review that this guy is the future of cinema. As it happens, Roger Ebert was absolutely right about that. That prompted this movie to get distribution. There were a couple things that they had to add in there and get released. And so this was a precursor to some early films that led up to a few years later, Mean Streets, which really kind of got the the ball rolling for Scorsese. Who's That Knocking on My Door is about a character named JR, played by longtime collaborator Harvey Keitel in one of his very, very early roles. And he actually stuck with the project for all five years that that they spent trying to make so he plays JR, who's a typical uh, Italian-American on the streets in New York. When he, when he gets involved with a local girl, he decides to get married and settle down. But when he learns that she was once raped, he cannot handle it. And it's linked to his Catholic guilt than, than anything else, which, of course, Scorsese would uh, include that Catholic guilt in those themes throughout a lot of his work. And we see... Two, two things kind of happening, maybe more than two things at a time here, but the central thing is uh, JR and it's called The Girl is the female character and the start of their relationship and the end of it, it's not done in chronological order. So we get kind of every time he's thinking about her, he's reviewing what happened with this relationship. And then we also see him kind of with the guys and they're getting into street fights. They're, you know, going out, you know, sometimes going to visit hookers. Sometimes they're, they're going out of town. There's big sequences like that, but the whole time this, this girl who he feels is kind of his soulmate is at the back of his mind. To me, is really, really interesting what happens when the reveal happens about her being raped because it comes mm-hmm. this idea. He treats rape like, like consensual sex. And he has this idea that he cannot marry somebody unless she's a virgin or she has sex with him. Yet, as we right. see, as his his notion of and he talks about this a bit you know there's there's girls and there's broads and broads are basically women that you use and then and then leave behind sexually so he's had sexual experience he slept with as many all these women as we see in this rather graphic sequence and he can't see the hypocrisy in the fact that she was raped this was her only sexual experience it is not sex but i I want to emphasize that in here but his reaction to it so it's kind of a male perspective on this because scorsese could only at that time offer a male perspective so so it's a small film. It's in, you know, kind of a, a first effort and there are some creaks and moans in it, but it is quite powerful in a way. And just when you see Kaitel's character make one stupid mistake after another, this relationship, you, you almost wince kind of as a, like in 2021, what we know, like how can he say these things and how can he re-victimize this poor girl? And so that's, that's kind of the battle of, of, of the film. And I think it just raises some interesting ideas, which are still relevant here, even though it was 1967, it was released and it was basically an extension of a student film. So I'm a yeah. big fan of who's that knocking on my door. It's nowhere near to Scorsese's best, but I think it's a really interesting debut feature, feature film. What do you think about who's that knocking on my door? Oh yeah. Well, I wasn't familiar with this movie at all. I 
thought Scorsese's debut feature was Boxcar Bertha. And I almost wrote to you, I was like, hey, you're wrong. It was Boxcar Bertha. But then I looked up something called the internet and I found out that who's that knocking on my door? But I am developing an argument that Boxcar Bertha is his first feature because this movie was cobbled together, kind of. It was like a student film, his student films, and then he shot some stuff around it. And then to get distribution, he had to shoot nudity. So he kind of shot, put that in. So it's kind of like a, it's a, I guess you could say it's his first feature, but it was very much cobbled together from different sources over the mm-hmm. over a, a series of years. Whereas Boxcar Bertha, you know, from the Boxcar Bertha Mean Street, I've never seen Boxcar Bertha, but yeah, I have. Yeah. I think it was a it was a Roger Corman produced movie, yeah. right? Exploitation yeah. film, but with yeah. Barbara Hershey, who you know went on to and still does have a very impressive uh, film. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of the release date. 67 is when the film as as a whole premiered, mm-hmm. you know. It's still being right. kind of worked on. But it was 72, the boxcar Bertha was, okay. was released. Yeah. Well, it was released as a feature. The way the movie actually opens up with uh, the very first image of the movie is this uh Something indicating that it was it was an, uh, uh, it was in the Chicago Film Festival, like a, a national selection of the. So that was that was interesting. It wasn't what I expected. Then I thought it was going to be. I didn't know it was going to be like. I don't want to say student film quality, but student film quality at least in terms of the budget. But most yeah. student, you know, there aren't a lot of student films that have uh, Harvey Keitel uh, as the lead you know, as a performance, and he's he's you know he's great in it. and just the performances. Oh, what separates this? It, it is a student film, I guess. So some of it. It is legitimately a student film. But what sets it apart is the performances, the way the camera moved, the way it's edited. He was working with that with the editor, uh, Thelma, what's her last name? Shoemaker. Shoemaker. He's like yeah. she's she edited edited um the Irishman, I think. So he, oh, yeah. he was working with her even almost, back then. Everything, almost everything he's done other than his kind of his side documentary projects, she's been an editor for. So this sounds very obvious. This is very good, but it <laughs> it looks like a student film made by an extremely talented person but yeah it's it's really it's very cool to watch in terms of it's another one of those movies just like i said you have to watch it with a certain perspective a certain eye because this isn't the kind of thing if you're modern day moviegoer you're not seeing a lot of stuff like this no. so you have to kind of you do have to watch it in terms of like this is a very early work but but look what look what we're seeing here you know how men and and women in like in heterosexual couples deal with each other i mean look Looking at it from a 1960s perspective as opposed to a modern perspective, which just has its own issues for sure. But yeah. it's like the communication piece, cultural piece in there. There's powerful scenes and certainly there's there's two scenes that are, are just really tough to watch as far as when she reveals that, that she was raped. And then yeah. when it looks like they're going to reconcile those scenes are both powerful, but my favorite scene in the movie, and this goes a little bit to how Scorsese has used Harvey Keitel. And it was just happened that Keitel was, I mean, I, I, as, as I understand it, he was, he was like a court stenographer or something. And he replied to a newspaper ad looking for actors when they were making the student film. And that started this collaboration because Harvey Keitel appears in the Irishman as well. So yeah, for, yeah. you know, decades long collaboration, but there's a scene when when they first meet. So Zena Bethune is the name of the actor who plays the the female love interest. Yeah, she yeah. did a really great job in it. You know, yeah, uh, she was in stuff before. She was a, a little bit of an established established actor actually. Yeah, but the scene when they first meet, it's it's on the ferry to Staten Island, and Kaitel. That that's the most I've ever seen where you know Kaitel represents 
Scorsese. The character is slightly different than Scorsese in some ways, but when he's talking about movies, that's where he feels comfortable. And I could see Scorsese talking to women at that particular time in his life, and he would just start start talking about John Wayne and the Searchers, mm-hmm. and yeah. let it go from there. And and I, I just love that scene. But that's a pretty heavy scene on dialogue. But this is an example of how good Scorsese was at that time because you don't feel the length of that scene you know it doesn't feel like it's a film stage play type of thing because of all the the unique shots that he uses and the editing and kind of having having her face and then his face there were some dissolves in there it was just a beautifully shot scene like that scene alone is worth you know the the price of admission for this one and never mind like the story is kind of an american attempted a uh, new wave type of approach it feels a little bit like mm. eddie's film in some ways even though i as i understand it most of what happens is indeed scripted even though it looks like it's improvised but you know it's it's just such an impressive first film i i mean i don't want to oversell it here there are kind of these uh as i guess the, the distributor wanted more sex in it. So we have the scene where JR and the girl are are talking and then he mentions this idea of difference between girls and broads. And then we, we cut to this sequence, which apparently was shot towards the end. It was like five years later that they went to Europe and shot Harvey Keitel and this whole montage of like these sex scenes with yeah. these women. It was Amsterdam too. It's like, what, did they get hookers from Amsterdam or I don't know. And that's, that's kind of a thing that sits there. I mean, it makes sense because it has to do with like the guilt of the sin that he's committed, but he justifies it by saying, well, these are hookers, these are broad. Yeah. And then we, we have a really long sequence where for some reason, JR and a couple of his buddies go to upstate New York and then- Yeah, hiking. They, yeah. yeah, they go hiking up to see this beautiful view that the one guy wants to see but the other two are grumbling about about the whole thing that that's a long sequence which kind of stops the main action of the movie but i'm willing to buy it because i kind of understand the independent nature at that time and 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 what scorsese was trying to do his influences would be like a a jean-luc godard or 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 somebody like that oh okay so i don't know how you felt about those well i thought the scenes with his buddies i first of all i was trying to figure out what they were were they kind of like were they like small time were they doing like small time crime or they seem like yeah because one guy was like collecting money from people in the beginning and then of course you because you know scorsese you kind of have that in your head it's got to be some kind of gangsters running around but i thought that the i thought the buddy scenes were a little boring that's my complaint about scorsese sometimes things can get a little little slow (laughs) and so but i liked the the scenes with hytel and the girl as they call her in in the movie those i was completely interested in but then then it was just like him hanging out with the buddies and it was it was all you know the the performances were fine my my understanding is that was the student film like him and his buddies with student film and then scorsese shot the yeah the the girl that that part was kind of the middle part of the shooting and then yeah they had to tack on this the sex business pretty late in the game there but yeah no i i think and if you've ever seen his short films i mean it kind of goes along with the short films they are not sort of like really you can't pinpoint them they aren't they aren't necessarily obvious uh the other that was here which i would see in nearly every movie he's ever made too at least certainly his new york movies or his his gang movies are just using that 1950s music so well place of a music score and he 
I mean, Who's That Knocking on My Door is a song, which is used really well towards the end, and how that's, that's beautifully edited in, into a lot of these sequences, which always, for some reason, I'm a sucker for it. You would do it again in, in, in Mean Streets right at the very beginning. And so we could see like the future filmmaker come out of this. But yeah, I don't think he really hit his, his full stride until Mean Streets. Not controversial to say that. Keitel was ready to go. I mean, that was a... Yeah, that's a heavy performance he gives. Yeah, enough people were paying attention to him too. Fuck naked again. We've seen him fuck <laughs> naked in at least four movies. You get to see these movies. Uh, some of them are like decades apart, so you can yes. see how how his body develops. <laughs> <laughs> Watching this and then the piano and yeah. lieutenant, whatever else is yeah, lieutenant and yeah. Yeah, good for him. I once saw a Larry King interview and he said, uh, why are you naked in all these movies? <laughs> That's good, Larry King. I didn't know I could do that. Why are you naked in all these Very movies? Good. Larry King, yeah, you got it. Yeah. Uh, why are you naked in all these movies? And uh, Harvey Keitel said, uh, no, why, why do you do nude scenes? And Harvey Keitel says, an, an actor doesn't do nude scenes. So I don't know what that is. That's got to be some Lee Strasberg thing <laughs> that I'm not aware of. <laughs> he's the character. The character's the character. the character. He's not the character. The character's naked, so... <laughs> Larry King said, I've seen you. I've seen you do nude scenes. <laughs> I like method actors, so I, I guess I... Yeah, why, no, it's... it's uh, that's why I defend them, I yeah. guess. For, uh, for those who love Scorsese and they want to see where it began, check out Who's That Knocking on My Door. Anything yeah. else you want to say about it? Well, just to say, who would, who would have known that years later, that same director would cast me as a Cuban waiter in The Wolf of Wall Street. Yes. And as a teamster in, in The Irishman. Yes. <laughs> You can see the wheels turning when you're watching Who's That Knocking on My Door. It's like You know it's coming. You know it's coming. The movie needed appearances by Kurt Fitzpatrick. Yes, to play a uh, Cuban waiter. And play a character in uh, Boardwalk Empire, which he produced. This is Los Angeles, gang capital of the nation. It just goes on and on, you know. Either they don't know. Don't show. I don't care about what's going on in the hood. In South Central LA. Yo, Benita, let's do the local thing. It's tough to beat the streets. What am I supposed to do? Fool roll up, try to smoke me? You shoot the motherfucker. You have to think, young brother, about your future. No, why you sweating? You're my only son, and I'm not going to lose you to no bull. Hey, don't worry about it. I can take care of myself. Trey wanted to work his way up. Trey is a grown man now. He is not a little boy anymore. I heard you like Mr. GQ Smooth now. Maybe some of what you got to rub off on it. Ricky was looking for a better life. I want to do something with my life, right? I want to be somebody. When you were a little boy, you used to run around here all the time with that football in your hand. I always knew you would amount to something. Doughboy was living by the laws of the street. Fuck you looking at, nigga? We got a problem here? We got a problem, nigga? Can we have one night where there ain't no fight, nobody gets shot? It's hard to be a saint in South Central L.A. I don't understand why you insist on learning things the hard way, Trey, but you gonna learn. How to survive in South Central, number one. Something wrong? 
something wrong yet. It's just too bad you don't know what it is. Now we're going to be moving into a time that I quite clearly remember as a, as a movie fan. Uh, 91 was the year where it was kind of the seed of me becoming a full-on movie nerd, and then it developed for a few years after that. But I, I remember 1991 was an interesting year in some ways, because there were three movies that came out that had this controversy around them. All kind of different reasons for controversy. My favorite movie of all time I've stated is JFK, and that was considered quite a controversial movie in 91, because of questions kind of the, the typical story of how Kennedy was was assassinated. Then Thelma and Louise was controversial because it was viewed as, you know, it's not right to have these, I don't know, I, I don't completely understand that one from a modern perspective, why it was controversial, that Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis, like, were responding to the violence that was put upon them and kind of became these these thieves or whatever. You know, all the belief was if it was males playing those roles, then it wouldn't have been a second thought. But in that summer, Thelma and Louise was controversial, but the other one that was very controversial was John Singleton, 23-year-old brand new filmmaker with Boys in the Hood, which if people actually took the time to watch Boys in the Hood, would understand that it is a criticism of what was happening in South Central Los Angeles at the time. It was not meant to incite gang violence, but of course the media and the opening weekends and the kind of thing, there were some shootings and some violence that happened at some movie theaters, which became a bit of a, a tough go for the film. I mean, it, it became successful i would say it was uh if we're you know saying modern now what we're what are we looking at here 30 years ago for this one too modern in that context classic film a very important film in the history of cinema but it had that controversy i don't know how much it hurt it i think the only thing that maybe hurt it was you know it was historic because john singleton was the first african-american nominated for best director also the youngest at 23 years of age and it was nominated for original screenplay but many people now watching that movie are like, why on earth was it not nominated for Best Picture? And I think maybe the controversy around that that happened, there were a lot of the older voters that didn't vote for it because of that, but they were still wanting to reward this young guy for the achievement that he had made with this film, which was essentially telling the story of the, the neighborhoods he grew up in, in Los Angeles. I believe he grew up in Inglewood, but a lot of this film takes place... Mm, Crenshaw. It's a little bit of the of his story, but then it has a few other elements here because he was kind of going off the rails when he was living with his mom as a kid, and he got sent to live with his dad, and he was kind of raised by by his father, who the film contends is one of the few men who would step up at that particular time and uh, actually raise his child. So we're we're seeing this through the eyes of the character played by Cuba Gooding Jr. I'll get to him a little bit in a moment, and two other friends who grew up together in the hood in quotation mark we have two half brothers doughboy who's played by memorably by ice cube and ricky baker played by probably the least known but still a significant actor morris chestnut and they're kind of foils for each other because uh, in personality they have different approach to the tough lives they face doughboy is into the gang stuff and the violence and ricky is a football player and he wants to go play football 
and go to college. And there definitely is within the relationship with their their mother, favoritism that's very much directed at Ricky over Doughboy. So Ricky's an All-American athlete and he's looking to win a football scholarship at USC and at the same time having to contend with people who have antagonism towards Doughboy. They come by the house and it looks kind of threatening at times. Between these two is Trey Stiles, who I think is kind of a quasi-fictionalized version of John Singleton himself, played by Cuba Gooding Jr. He's lucky to have this father, Furious Stiles, played by, at the time, Larry Fishburne, before he became Lawrence Fishburne, to teach him to have the strength of character to do what is right and to take responsibility for his actions. And just feel like you know this neighborhood really well by the end. Controversies around some stuff that happened have with blood and crit violence when the film was released, unfortunately, because it is a movie that is supposed to be about peace and, and criticizing this this person gets killed and then the rival gang comes and kills somebody else to get revenge and then they get somebody killed and this is endless cycle of violence. The, the movie starts off with a, a statistic, which I'm not sure where it is right now, here 30 years later, that one in 24 African-American males will die by murder. You know, it's it's an important, it's a sobering film. And this movie was also quite important because it introduced really very much the power player African-American actors that, you know, from 91 on, this was in there, like they were 18 to 20 years old. Cuba Gooding Jr., Morris Chestnut, Ice Cube. Certainly Ice Cube was known from, from his rap career a little bit more. But we also have in there, you know, Angela Bassett plays Cuba Gooding Jr.'s mother. And it's interesting to see the scenes with her and Larry Fishburne because two mm-hmm. years later, they would team up in What's Love Got to Do With It, uh, the Tina Turner, Ike Turner biopic. And they, they just have such chemistry together on screen. And then Regina King, who's a fairly recent Oscar winner and also now a pretty heavy producer and director and influential presence in Hollywood, is also also on the film. Nia Long, really great cast, an important movie. But perhaps, like a lot of great films, the only drawback I see was it started to have a, a whole series of other films for many years, which were that only black stories could take place in the hood in Los Angeles or New York or Chicago and were about violence and maybe had led to reinforcing some stereotypes. Tough for me to say that because, I, again, I'm I, I'm not African American. You're not African American. So for us to discuss that, I would, you know, would be a conversation with somebody who could say something about it. But it, it does sound like between Do the Right Thing in 1989 and Boys in the Hood, it really kind of started to make some movements which weren't completely followed up in cinema history with telling mm-hmm. black stories by black filmmakers. So I'm, I'm impacted every time I've watched Boys in the Hood probably about five times. I'm emotionally impacted every time. It's I'm an enormous, enormous fan of this, and I'm going on way too long about it. That's what it normally happens. But I, I just, I, I just wonder what its place is in history, like 30 years later. So anyway, so any insights okay. you have about that, and also your opinion oh, yeah. of the movie? You can, I'm about to explode. Yeah. I have so much to respond to. First of all, regarding the Oscars, I was very conscious of this. I was thinking about this because if you remember, Prince of Tides was nominated for Best Picture that year, yeah. and there was a controversy of why wasn't Barbara Streisand nominated for Best Director? To the point where when the Oscars were going on, Billy Crystal in his opening number, he even had a song. He's like, did this movie direct itself? And the people did. But the thing was, John Singleton was nominated for Best Director. So I think John Singleton may have been the only nominee who didn't have a movie nominated for Best Picture. So nobody said it, but if 
Barbara had been nominated, John Singleton would have been out. Well, yes, and but actually there, there were two because uh, we had Beauty of the Beat, Beauty and the Beast, and The Prince of Tides were because it was five nominees at the time. We're both up for Best Picture. Okay. So the other, the other person who maybe if Streisand had gotten in that might not have been nominated was Ridley Scott for Thelma and Louise. Okay, I wonder who yeah. wasn't it. Maybe we should look that up. All right, so maybe there were there was uh, somebody else, but but Thelma and Louise had yeah. more nominations than than Boys in the Hood. So yeah, I mean, like like who knows who was sixth place in that in that probably was Streisand was sixth place, but who was fifth place in the voting? Yeah, at that time. But yeah, they spent a lot of time on on Streisand kind of being snubbed there. It was anyway, a really good year yeah. for movies, by the way. So all these movies yeah. that I'm mentioning, I think they all probably deserved Best Picture nominations. Yeah. And in the five to ten scheme that they use now, which I'm not, again, I'm not a fan of really, but I think, you know, there would have been opportunity for Boys in the Hood, Thelma and Louise. I think I'm a big fan of Fisher King. Fisher King. Oh, yeah. I love that. Nominations, but not Best Picture nomination. A movie that I really love called Grand Canyon might have had a shot in there. It was, it was a really good year for movies. So what, somebody stopped carried away. No, that was good. It was good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I put it. I think I did like. It. I think I did like Grand Canyon. I don't know quite as much as those other movies, but okay. yeah. But anyway, so I mean, I think now with the new voter rules and again the fact that the Academy has been so criticized for uh, for their yeah. nominees, if the same movies were re released now, I think Boys in the Hood would have been a lock. It might have even been the favorite to win Best Picture. Oh, well, even, even over a Silence of the Lambs type of thing. So yeah. Oh, geez, was that the year Silence of the Lambs was out too? Wow, yeah. that was a strong yeah. year. Silence um, of the Lambs, Bugsy, JFK. Prince of Tides and Beauty and the Beast, which Beauty and the Beast was the first time an animated movie was nominated for Best Picture. Okay. There's a lot of stuff going on. It was a good uh, year for movies. 1991, right? Yeah. Bugsy, I never saw. But um, in terms of Boys in the Hood, I saw Boys in the Hood. Yes, I was very much aware. I think I was like first year of college or somewhere around there when I first, when this movie came out. I don't think I saw when when it came out, but I saw it like very, very shortly after. I, and I saw it recently again. And yeah, it's certainly a movie that's, held up we have we now have a uh, two oscar winners that came out of that movie and you mentioned this was this was a regina king's first movie regina king's first three movies were all john singleton movies in fact she just directed her first movie this year yeah i believe it's her first miami movie. Yeah, yeah, so fixed on it, but it's uh, yeah. John Singleton is no longer with us. He passed away a few years ago. I was so sad to when I, I saw yeah. that. He is um in all due respect, he's another. He kind of had the Orson Welles thing where he kind of made he, his first movie was a great movie. I I don't think he made a movie that. Well, I haven't seen all his movies, but I saw Poetic Justice and I saw Higher Learning, and yeah. they didn't measure up to Poison Hood at, at all. I don't think. I like them both, though. I mean, I. I I th I think I was disappointed, hmm. especially poetic justice. I think I was disappointed. That that almost had like a lead with a uh, Regina King was in that like in a yeah. lead role. Tupac Boys in the Hood has really uh, great performances. I was well aware of rap music of the day. I was a white kid who listened to all the raps, so, so I I totally knew Ice Cube. I knew the song Boys in the Hood. I was like, oh, yeah. they they made a movie about the song. I remember hearing about the making of the movie, how they made use of. Sound and throughout the whole movie, you could hear helicopters. The uh, sound of helicopters. It's definitely a movie that I've always enjoyed. This in movies or TV shows or even in plays, you could do this where someone just creates their own world. It's their own world. This is obviously a world that existed, mm -hmm. but I mean, like in a movie, they're creating a whole whole world where you you, know, you can really feel the 
culture and you know there's a certain just everything works in a certain way that it really conveys this this world that's why like peewee's big adventure is one of my all-time favorite movies if not because it just creates this wonderful quirky world that everybody all these weird people and unusual people just just somehow exist in this it, it, there's no there's no explanation as to how peewee exists like this but he just it just works it, and it works like just so well for me <laughs> But yeah, that's, I think, Boys in the Hood, it was, um, it has some great stuff. There's a scene in it where Lawrence Fishburne as Furious Styles, he takes Cuba Gooding Jr., I guess, and a horse chestnut out to part of the hood. And he starts giving a speech about gentrification. And then different people of the neighborhood start gathering around. And there's like some of, one one kid's like a gangster. There's an older guy who is Grady on Sanford and Son. Yes. And so, and, and so Lawrence Fishburne's given this speech. And I thought, wow, this could really easily be forced and cheesy, but it just, it, it works. It works. It was interesting. And it just, you know, and then he's sort of like, he's addressing the other people who are walked up to him. And, and to me, it's just so amazing that they, that they could make a scene like that work, that they, that they just pull up in a car. He gets, he gets out and starts making a speech. Well, and he was talking about stuff that nobody was talking about, I think in 1991. And for, Again, for this, whenever he first wrote Boys in the Hood, because he, he, he was definitely younger than 23 when he wrote the script, to yeah. be as aware as he, of what the media was doing to African Americans and the systemic racism that's brought up in this movie and isn't all that different in 2021, 30 years later. I mean, people are talking about it because enough is enough, but enough has been enough for hundreds of years of history. And, you know, I, I, I just think the, the same the same game gets played. And, you know, Singleton knew this was going on. He probably filmed it in 1990 and it came out in 1991. And, and that, that speech is very important and shows how good Fishburne is. Like, I actually think a friend yeah. of mine, we did this thing a few years ago, our favorite performances of all time in, in films. And he, he chose Fishburne in Boys in the Hood. And the last mm -hmm. two times I've watched Boys in the Hood, both times preparing for a show, one that didn't happen and then this one. One. I really watched and Fishburne, like I can't disagree. Like Fishburne probably now would have been up for best supporting actor. Yeah, he should have been. Yeah. You know, there were there were two African American actors in '91 that probably there could have been an argument should have been on the list. The other one would be Samuel L. Jackson for Jungle Fever. You know, the two great performances, but instead we had some other people in there and not bad performances. Like the, I know the five performances really well, but that scene and then the scene, you know, into spoiler territory here. But you know, one of the main characters has been. And has been killed and got caught in the midst of this gang stuff. And Cuba Gooding Jr. is is furious and he wants to get revenge right then and there. Yeah. And uh, he has a gun and Larry Fishburne, he steps between his son and says, no, you don't want to do this. And it's like a very, very dangerous moment. And he's very powerful in that scene. And then the payoff that happens shortly after it in another scene where the same kind of power comes from not a word of dialogue. Just right. Yeah. A reaction from Fishburne to Cuba Gooding Jr. just as he as he he shuts the door after the characters made a certain choice. 
Yeah, um, it, it's just great angles. Like, I mean, we start off with this, like, this swearing and this noise and this gun violence, and the very first shot we actually see is a stop sign. Mm-hmm. Right. And then in the flashback with the kids, and these, he does a good job directing these, these young kids. What was the street sign like? Like, do not enter or something when these guys... When they're when they're walking towards so, because they want to look at this dead body, yeah. remind I me think, of Stand by Me actually. I think it was influenced by that, yeah. But he, the way he's using like the the street signs in a neighborhood so well, and you're right about the sound. Like I I, I don't know, like I I mean I I lived in Bushwick near Gates, and mm-hmm. my stint living in uh, in Brooklyn there, and there's always noise, and so yeah. it, it would yeah. be a mistake to make a film like this and not surround it with noise and the helicopters, like, like the Ghetto Bird helicopter, and it. It just it has the power and i'm a big fan of do the right thing another movie that should have had a best picture nomination oh yeah and like those two together but i i think they they operate in different ways and different messages to, right. to give so i i think you know it's it's okay that they came so close to each other like within two years of, of release you know i think boys in the hood is one that everybody should check out and i think it's it kind of shows how things were in the 90s but also i think it reflects how things still are in many ways yeah there was a there was a wave of african-american filmmakers at that time there was there was a filmmaker called maddie rich who made yeah. straight out of brooklyn and uh spike lee didn't like maddie rich because maddie rich would say like well i didn't have to go to school i'd have to learn hmm. but maddie rich was also lying about his age like he said he was like 16 when he made the movie and so but then uh spike lee he really liked john singleton yeah, and so I think there was a there were some others. Another the very good, yeah, the Hughes brothers made. I'm trying to think of the name of that that movie though. Uh, Menace, Menace to Society. Yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't seen that for a long time either. And of course, and a great movie made around that era by um, African American filmmaker, African American cast is House Party. Yes, yeah. House Party. Yeah. House Party is a great movie with that kid and play and the late Robin Harris. So yeah, I haven't seen this world of the hood, and because even like watching the movie, it's like, well, how like how do get out of there like how do you get out of there it's just like he, he went to um he went to college like like are you talking about singleton well i was thinking about when you watch when i'm watching the movie the characters i'm thinking like how did how can oh, they yeah, cycle. get out of that situation yeah and i don't know if there's yeah. movies i haven't seen a movie like that in a in a while they might be out there but they might be a little bit under the under the radar they're being swallowed up by the well those movies are being consumed a whole different way this year but they might be being swallowed up by captain america or something i don't know yeah but also i like i don't think when when i've seen attempts to make movies like this like I think the, the closest, and it was a, a Caucasian filmmaker, Detroit, a few years ago, Catherine Bigelow. Oh, uh, I didn't see that. Would, and I, I really like like Detroit. I think it's quite powerful. It's the closest that we get to something like this. But a lot of other attempts in recent times don't feel as authentic as cinema we got from the 90s. It's hard a, to make a great movie. A couple perhaps controversial statements, or at least one controversial statement. Cuba Gooding Jr. performance in Boys in the Hood is a hundred times better than his Oscar winning performance in Jerry Maguire. I still to this day do not understand. It was a fun speech to watch, but I do not understand why he won. I think there's more reason to have nominated him for Boys in the Hood than than Jerry Maguire, you know. And I, I kind of mix on Cuba because he kind of will, will do some great stuff early in his career and then he does absolute garbage for 20 years then he shows up in that oj simpson tv show and he does a great job of 
playing OJ Simpson, and then he's back to making that he's capable of better. He always feels yeah. He's a guy you, you kind of see him acting sometimes. Yeah, he's snow dogs and but and, did you like him in um, Men of Honor? That was a, yeah. That was kind of a, again one of those upticks. Yeah, I thought that he was good in that. Mediocre. He's kind of like a Burt Reynolds type who would Ooh. get great and then and then go disappear and do crap for yeah ten years and then occasionally show up in something worthwhile again. So that's kind of the you know I, I'm glad like Regina King really really emerged and how many times was she paired with Cuba Gooding Jr. She's in Jerry Maguire as well and it, she started to get like worked 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 started to get better and better roles uh, mostly through television and then in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hill Street could talk. So and the leftovers. That's a that's a great show. Oh, I, I haven't leftovers. I read the book. But I haven't I haven't watched the show yet. So and and now uh, I guess Watchmen. She won an Emmy for that too. So anyway, I'm, I'm I'm happy to sort of see that. I I kept expecting like that's a sadness for me with John Singleton's death. I kept expecting one more like it. I didn't see that Rosewood movie he did about the town that got burnt down. I, I would like to see that. I am a defender of higher learning, which has some powerful moments to it. Poetic justice as well. Mostly for, like, I went to see it as the follow-up to Boys in the Hood and to also to see how good Janet Jackson was. And it was yeah. too her that actually was the one who sold me on the movie. But you're right. His best movie is Boys in the Hood. And as it turns out, that will always be his best film. It, it's it's going to be getting quite a few points here because I it's gotten better and better and better for me as I've grown older. Uh, oh, a couple of things I wanted to add. The kid, one of the kids in the movie's real name is Desi Arnaz Hines II. Yes. So I appreciate that. And I was going to also mention I like the character. I like the guy in the wheelchair who keeps telling everybody the, uh, the place to meet women is, is you, you, you got to go to church. Boys in the Hood's a classic, and people people definitely need to check it out. Yes, they do. Preparation was good, you know. I think that's your specialty. Thank you, because if I said that one, it would sound like bragging. Obviously good quickness. Yeah, in and out pretty fast. Real fast. Including the coin collection and the earrings. You took the earrings, Dignan? I bought the earrings for my mother on her birthday. Maybe we should have robbed your house. You ever think of that? Three outstanding young men. Well, come on, baby, and rock with me tonight. Bob Mapplethorpe, potential getaway driver. Go. I really want to be a part of this team. And I'm the only one with a car. That's good. That's good. Because that hits me right here. I'm Anthony. You speak English? It's amazing how close you can get to a girl when you're not allowed to talk to her. And my name's Digden, man. You in the army, yes? No, no, I just had short hair. We are a team. Dignan, I, I can't focus unless the gun, gun is on the table. We just paid for it. Shut up, man. We don't settle our problems with pugs, man. We settle them with bare knuckles and that's nothing. All they ever wanted was to be wanted. What are you putting that tape on your nose for? Let's get lucky. Just do exactly as I say. Let's move. Come on. Get one of those bags. A bigger one, you idiot. What do you think? Don't call me an idiot, you punk. Okay, do you have a, do you have bigger bags for atlases or dictionaries, uh, sir? I want to tell you something, kid. You got the guts of a damn lion. That is Mr. Henry. Hey, Henry, how are you? Before I get into Bottle Rocket, I, I need to know, are you a fan of Wes Anderson? Um, I'm going to say yes. 
but I, I never saw Moonrise Kingdom. I never saw, he made two animated movies. I never saw those. I don't have much of a memory of Life Aquatic. The Grand Budapest Hotel I saw on a plane. I don't re- I don't have any, I just don't remember what I thought of those two movies. But I know I, I'll let you know what I think about this movie. I love Rushmore. And I very much enjoyed The Royal Tenenbaums. I thought that was a very good movie. I can't speak too much. The one movie I saw on a plane, and when you're in a plane, your brain's rattling <laughs> I saw, you know, anyway, so I can't be responsible because I saw the plane. And I, I don't remember much about The Life Aquatic, but I did see it. But am I a fan? I'd say based on two or three movies, I'll let you know what I think of this movie. Based on that, I, I would say I'm a fan, yeah. An early fan. What I'd say is I like, is very controversial because some people say that he's the, the best filmmaker going right now. And I know people just absolutely love him and will see anything that he does. The first time I kind of got on board with him as far as live action movies was the Grand Budapest Hotel, which is kind of a, relatively speaking, one of his later films or recent films. And there's always some sort of a hesitation there. And I, I, I don't quite know what it is. So you mentioned Rushmore. Rushmore kind of got him a lot more attention than Bottle Rocket. And I saw Rushmore on my very first visit to New York City. And I, I had friends who absolutely loved it. I liked it. Yeah. I really liked Bill Murray in it, but I can't say that I loved it. But I kept going to his movies just because of all the press and Royal Tenenbaums liked it, didn't love it. And it kept going. And in fact, there were some in there that I, I actually didn't like. Darjeeling Limited is one that I... Oh, I don't remember if I saw that or not. I forgot. Yeah, that one. I, I had huge problems with that movie. I don't think I saw it. Well, I feel like I, it's one of these things where I'm supposed to like him more than I actually like him. You know, he kind of operates in a world where we're, it is satire. It is absurdism as well. And he is kind of criticizing these rich, entitled, mostly Caucasian characters. But I don't know. I, it's It almost seems like he feels he's more clever than I think he actually is. And I'm a big fan of David Lynch. So so people give me a hard time about Lynch, that Lynch is messing with audiences. And so I don't know. I, I'm not going to project that completely onto Wes Anderson. But somehow for my taste, I don't like it as much. Yet I recognize the moments of brilliance. And Bottle Rocket was his first feature film. I guess he had made a black and white short film that somehow James L. Brooks got a hold of and encouraged him to turn it into a feature length film. But it, it sounded like it had, like, it was a box office flop. It, yeah. it, it all kinds of rewrites. And like the other piece, we, we both admire Scorsese. Scorsese was on a, a show with Roger Ebert talking about the 10 best movies of the 90s. And he chose Bottle Rocket, number seven or something on his list, too. So I, I saw it years ago. I and I, I bought a copy. I don't know if I bought it, then I watched it afterwards or what the order was. And this was only my second time seeing it. And I was amazed how much I had forgotten about it. I'd completely forgotten that James Kahn was in it, for example, which was a little bit of a, a carrot for me to go see because I'm a bit of a James Kahn fan. But I remembered next to nothing about it, which I don't, in this case, it wasn't a good sign. I've watched it again and there's some bits that are kind of charming, but I feel like if I give it some time, I'm going to forget this movie again. Part of your love or whatever for this film will rest on the Wilson brothers, Luke Wilson and Owen Wilson. They, they don't sink a movie for me, but they never really disappear into their roles. I would say the one leg up that Owen Wilson has for me over Luke Wilson is how good he was in Midnight in Paris, the Woody Allen film. Oh yeah. But other than that, like they are pretty, pretty similar brand. So, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of lukewarm on them as well. 
as much as people really love Owen Wilson and, you know, he's he's had a little bit of a journey and a story there too. Luke Wilson's character is released from a mental hospital following a nervous breakdown. The directionless Anthony joins his friend, played by Owen Wilson. So they aren't brothers in the movie, they're friends in the movie, who seems far less sane than the former. And Owen Wilson has hatched a harebrained scheme for his yet specified crime spree that somehow involves his former boss, the legendary Mr. Henry, played by James Caan. With the help of their pathetic neighbor and pal Bob, Anthony and Dignan pull a job and hit the road where Anthony finds love with a motel maid named Inez, who I actually think was the best character in the movie. And actually, the I'll get the woman's name in a moment, gave, in my opinion, the best, best performance in the film. When the boys finally hook up with Mr. Henry, the ensuing escapade turns out to be far from what anyone expected. So if it had not been for this Inez character, and I want to get her name here, uh, Lumi Chavales, mispronouncing the last name there, I would say there was not a single character in this movie to like. Yet, Wes Anderson's humor is kind of cool. The robbery is funny. I smiled. I laughed. But if we're putting this movie up against Citizen Kane and Boys in the Hood, I don't think it quite works as well. So this is my hang-up film here, but I also think maybe there's something I'm missing. So I'd be happy to get a different opinion on Bottle Rocket. So what did you think? Yeah, I like this movie a lot more than you did, I think. Yeah, Um, still, I'm sounding really harsh it's kind of like a three star small mild thumbs up part of this for me is nostalgia because this is the one movie of this group that i actually saw in the theater and i remember it came out i got these great reviews i read about it about how it was made with james brooks seeing a short film lm kick Carson was involved in this too. I don't know if anybody's a fan of his, but I, I was familiar with uh, some of his work. And this movie got these these great reviews and I saw it and I, I've always felt like I was an early fan of Wes. Like I knew who Wes Anderson was before anybody else did because yeah. this was back in the day, this was 1996. So a movie could actually be playing in theaters and still be un- under the radar in, in mm-hmm. some way. And so, and then of course the next movie was Rushmore and there was like, Wes Anderson, yay. It's like, no, no, I, I was there first. I went to see Bottle Rocket and I thought it was awesome. I, d- I did really enjoy it. I, I, I really I really enjoyed it when I went to see it years ago. And I hadn't seen it since, so it's about uh, 25 years and I've seen it. And I just recently watched it, watched it again. And it's different watching it now because now, I, at the time, I didn't know Owen Wilson was or Luke Wilson. We never saw them before. So you're seeing these people for the first time. And why did I enjoy it so much? I was just, I was completely engrossed in the whole story. I thought I just, I liked Owen Wilson's character. He was kind of dim-witted, but he was always planning things. You know, he always had, he always had these schemes and it was, I think in, in, in many ways, it was a movie about friendship and loyalty to each other. And it was, I don't know, see, it's hard, like you talk about Wes Anderson, it's hard for me to articulate what, what it is unique about him, but there's a very quirky obviously he's got a really quirkiness to him and here i guess it was like more like bare bones quirkiness whereas you get to the his other his uh, future movies it becomes the quirkiness kind of like it extends into the casting and the you know the the sets and everything else is going on the music and here i think it was a more so i guess it was because it was the, the first movie it was a little more restrained but i don't know i just i like the spirit of the movie and i think more people even if they didn't watch it in 1996 are probably with your perspective than, than mine i don't know what the hang-up is part of it i think does rest with the owen wilson performance because 
He's supposed to be this lovable loser, but I was annoyed by him from beginning to end. I was so annoyed by him. So it's tough. If I don't like this guy, it's a lot of time with him. Yeah, I guess the advantage that Luke Wilson had is, even though it's kind of a plain toast type of performance, but he isn't annoying. Uh, I mean, you see this where this you have this eccentric friend and you go along with the friend and so he's a loyal friend and that's interesting but but like odd odd and it's normally like the, the love stories in a movie could be just taken out or whatever but mm-hmm. this one almost saves it for me i mean they're staying at this cheap motel and he encounters this housekeeper and just immediately falls in love with her and yeah. they they can't communicate with each other because he doesn't speak spanish and she doesn't she speaks a little bit but not a lot of english a charming sequence in here because i'm saying a lot of negative things is they uh there's this this kid who does like he does the dishes or whatever he works in the hotel too and he's he speaks spanish and english and he acts as the uh the translator for these yeah. these long conversations between luke wilson and inez and and then that was kind of the payoff to that was kind of fun where where owen wilson is is hearing this this line from from this kid which was supposed to be a message from you know his would-be girlfriend saying i love you but owen wilson thinks it's just the boy who does the dishes in the hotel is in love with luke wilson and so that kind of miscommunication like that, that that whole bit was was charming there's enough stuff to like it i wouldn't dissuade anybody from seeing it and if you're a wes anderson fan check it out for some reason i like his animated movies like the fantastic mr fox i was a big fan of i think i even put it on my top 10 list of that year i like what he does with animation maybe more than i, I like his live action i guess these characters maybe for me they're just they're just characters that i can relate maybe i could have related to them like because they're they're similar they were similar to my age when i, I saw the movie and there's the idea of these characters who are just they're kind of on an adventure in a way and they don't really know where they're going and they're just they're kind of like work things out out. I mean, I related more to these characters than I would like the people on Melrose Place or yeah. Beverly Hills 90210. I, the people who are a little bit screwed up and finding their way and having weird that, that's where that's where I was at. That's where I'm still kind of at. Um, <laughs> Yeah. I, I would rather spend time with these characters than with the Aaron Spelling 1990s TV yeah. characters. Yes, so I, I'm with you there. Except for that, Andrea Zuckerman. She's now the she's now the president of SAG after. Yeah. I like the part where James Kahn, and I think James, there's a little tiny part, and I, I forgot this. James Kahn is playing the piano. He's in Bob's house. Yes, <laughs> he's just playing the piano, and he's like, Bob's got a really nice house. And there was like a one second scene, and I just loved it. I was like, that's great. Well, of course, the reason why it's in there is you find it at the end. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> rob Bob's house and stole the piano. It's worth yeah, like ten thousand like- dollars, whatever. <laughs> I mean. I- I like all that, but the problem is it's predictable. James Caan, he's going to end up being a villain in some way in the supporting role, okay? He's really fun and eccentric, and you like the scene where he uh, straightens out Bob's brother, who's a a woman. And it's it's kind of fun to see kind of a a not-so-mafioso James Caan. But when the the, the surprise (laughs) happens, I'm not all that surprised to see... I forgot. I forgot that he's still... Bob's got a nice great house <laughs> that was like their whole plan along to rob the house and then I like that Owen Wilson's character he's still he's like for, he, he's he's still okay with them that they, that they rob his house that they rob Bob's house in fact he wanted to rob Bob's house <laughs> And then, and then yeah. he was okay. He was okay that they never come to visit. He's like, really? Never, never really? Applejack? Is it really Applejack got off? What? How that happen? <laughs> and then so he's like, he made <laughs> belt buckles. He made belt buckles for the two guys. Here's uh, belt. Here's three more. I'll give it to him. I have no problem with that. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I think that's kind of sweet. I think that's that's the way to be. So I don't know. I I, I related to this movie 25 years ago, and now today I still relate to it. This is um I don't know. Maybe the maybe the nerdy, geeky, dorky Wes Anderson, <laughs> Anderson. Maybe those movies are, are uh maybe that's my because I love Rushmore. I. <laughs> <laughs> but I know people who had it as the best movie of that year, and I, I just thought it. Which one, Rushmore? Yeah, but it, I remember thinking Bill Murray probably deserved Oscar nomination for best supporting actor that year. But it's a similar problem with not liking the protagonist, the Jason Schwartzman character. And I kind of this is extended into a problem I have with that actor as well, who's a regular collaborator with Wes Anderson. I I just am not a fan of Jason Schwartzman, and so I I, I couldn't stand him in Rushmore. But I like some of the other characters that were kind of around him so i don't know it's a battle i have but grand budapest hotel was on my top 10 list i was very happy it got best picture nominations and did quite well at the oscars and it's just i i, I i'm cheering for every wes anderson film and and i'm feeling like it's my thing where i i'm working so hard to get caught up to whatever i'm seeing here and i'm obviously missing something so well, you know we'll, we'll just take, take it take it as that I, I i guess and so i'm glad that you like bottle rocket and <laughs> it's not a bad movie, but I'm just not foaming at the mouth about it as, as much as some of these other ones. If you're a fan of indie movies in the 90s and you're a fan of Wes Anderson, check out Bottle Rocket. And I think you, you could do a lot worse. Sophia Coppola's name was Mud because in 
1990, when The Godfather Part Three was released, she ended up with a pretty significant role in that film, replacing Winona Ryder, which Hollywood seemed to view as like a ridiculous act of nepotism for Francis Ford Coppola to have his daughter play Michael Corleone's daughter. And her acting got brutally criticized and it became like a legendary as well as like, I'm a, I'm a fan of that that film of more, more than most people. But for years, it was like, this was just one of the worst performances in film history. And then again, I, she showed up in uh, The Phantom Menace. People were again, Razzie Award nominations and, and, and all of that stuff. And it was just like, okay, what, what, what use is she? And then in 2000, her directorial debut, she wrote and directed adapting a book called The Virgin Suicides. And I went to see it, a Kirsten Dunst fan in particular, but James Woods is in it and Kathleen Turner. Interesting enough cast. I went to see it and I was absolutely blown away. And I said, like, she's potentially as good as Francis. Perhaps she might even be better than Francis Ford Coppola, but certainly doing more interesting stuff in 2000 onwards than Francis Ford Coppola has. The movie was released sometime in the spring. It didn't get awards attention. I really think it should have. It was high, high, high on my top 10 list that year. A damn sight better than the Academy Award winning Gladiator, which I'm still angry that it won Best Picture. I really love this movie. And then, of course, our next movie was Rock Translation, which really changed the career of Bill Murray and she won kind of like the Orson Welles thing they gave the screenplay award to her they didn't give her best director and uh, she had to lose to a similarly overrated Lord of the Rings film that year for for best picture but I actually think The Virgin Suicides is better than Lost in Translation it is a haunting story kind of from the perspective of these boys who were quite intrigued by this this family where they were all girls all very you know interesting attractive teenage girls who all died by suicide and what was going on and it's a mystery that they try to piece together throughout the film and that's the the basic premise James Woods is a math teacher who's their father Kathleen Turner is their heavily religious mother who tries to keep them at home and kind of away from the evils particularly after the youngest girl has tried suicide and then uh, actually completes it because again it's tough to to judge or fault anybody but every mistake that you could possibly make with this girl after she comes back home is done and then we watch the surviving girls as they like go through their year of high school and there's these boys that are interested in them and we follow in particular the second youngest who's played by Kirsten Dunst as the most popular boy in school becomes very interested in her and he's um, played by Josh Harnett in maybe Josh Harnett's best film role I might argue playing this guy named Trip Fontaine set in the 70s it is all 70s costuming art direction design set in a very privileged affluent community I think Sofia Coppola was the right person for this material I think she understood these girls this world growing up kind of with some privilege but also kind of this trend that started to happen in uh, this this world where teenagers were not understood and would choose that as and that, and that is still a factor you know as far as the time frame of this story and 50 years later where we are having a suicide epidemic among uh, teenagers and it's it does affect everybody including those who have great privilege so 
the film doesn't is is almost a horror story in some ways and other points a dark comedy i don't know if this is a criticism of it but maybe it's my only criticism of it is that is some of the dark humor appropriate or not given the subject matter of the film i thought kirsten dunst should have been up for an oscar for this i've, I've been a fan of hers for a long time and i thought she this is where she announced herself as a as a leading actor to me was this film whereas i, I thought some of the more experienced actors would be you know like woods or whatever and james woods is fantastic by the way in it and completely different role than what he normally plays but the winners in this were kirsten dunst who's collaborated uh, several times with Sofia Coppola. But then Coppola's writing and direction, she was 27 years old when she filmed this. It felt she, like she'd been making movies for, for 50 years. So I think it's it's kind of my, my underrated film to push with this show. But uh, I'm curious what you think about uh, The Virgin Suicides. You really like this. Wow. Well, uh, I wanted to add that the last three movies we did, Bottle Rocket, Virgin Suicides, and Boys in the Hood, they all won the MTV Music Award for Best New Filmmaker. There you go. So all three. I ignore the MTV movie a lot. I've watched that ceremony once or twice. It was it was kind of big for a while. But obviously it shows that they have some good taste, too. So Yeah, so. Uh, the Virgin Suicides, well, yes, so, Sofia Coppola had rebuilt her career, you know, she as a, as a filmmaker, you know, for years after uh, Godfather Part Three. Then recently, this past year, 2020, uh, Francis Ford Coppola re-released Godfather Part Three, recut it, thus destroying her career again. And he's going to have to rebuild from there. So it's a very sad situation. But this movie, yes, I agree. There's a really very distinct style to it in terms of just, I noticed in the colors, there was a lot of brown throughout the whole movie. And I, yeah, I, there was a, there was also a, a there was a Romancing the Stone, War of the Roses reunion with Danny DeVito in one scene. That's a lot of that. I guess that shows connections that she has, but this also shows, you know, confidence as a filmmaker that she was able to bring in DeVito. Yeah. I know he worked with, I know he was in the Rainmaker with Francis for Coppola before, so she she probably seen him around the house or whatever. But well, Scott Glenn yeah. makes an appearance as a priest. He of course, oh, yes, he does. He does. Yeah, yeah. He'd worked with Francis on uh, Apocalypse Now, of course, and so okay, okay. Like in the in the documentary material, he talks about I've known Sophia since she was five years old, and now she's my boss on this film. So right. So it definitely was. It definitely it was a movie that came with. We could call it privilege, I guess, but she uses it all to her best advantage. Yes, a very distinct style. I like how the boys were more like I was as a boy, just very awkward and not knowing what to say. Yeah. So I could relate part, to that. That party they have, which I mean, the, the payoff yeah. is so, so dark and tragic, but you know, you're watching this thing and it's, it's the most awkward teenage party there. Oh, yeah, but that's what I could relate to. I, 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 I haven't lost all that. I, yeah. You know, there's a scene where like the boy has a locker next to the girl. He wants to talk to her. He's like, so he doesn't, he doesn't know what to say. It's like, yeah, I, I get that. So and she turns and says, you don't have to talk to me. And that's just right, like, yeah. oh, you feel so bad for that guy. Cause like, he obviously, yeah. her, you know, and, and she's just shot him down. And yeah, if, if I'm relating to the movie, that means it's definitely, there's definitely a lot of awkward <laughs> <laughs> awkward odd characters but yeah i did I, this was a movie that i watched i watched I, I did see this years ago i saw it probably about three weeks ago or something like that and so yeah i mean it's i mean down to the opening titles are very distinct all the colors are distinct the music i love when uh josh hartnett walks through the high school hallway and i uh, distinctly remember that because i probably saw this movie 20 years ago or something like that or 18 19 years ago but i distinctly remember that scene because it's just such a badass scene that he has 
Beautifully directed and shot. And not the only scene that's like that. And I like Michael Pere is in the movie as the older, older version of Josh Hartness character. Mm-hmm. I didn't, he, he was Eddie in the cruisers. He was Eddie from yeah. Eddie and the cruisers and streets of, fire he had like a he had a career going in the 80s i didn't even recognize him i hadn't seen him in so long i think i, I looked up no i saw his name in the credits i was like michael Perret, where was he because i remember him from eddie and, the cruisers and, and what a great you know because you're like well what why are we seeing the older version of this guy but then we we get to like the payoff there where the nurse tells him it's time for his group that like he's obviously in some sort of drug rehabilitation and then he was like the, the popular whatever guy, you know. Yeah, that's that's kind of like, yeah, that's kind of like what happens in that that scene where uh, Josh Hart has walked through the hallway. That's probably like the high point of his confidence. He's a football star. He's yeah. before class. Girls are bringing him homework and baking. They all want to be his his girlfriend, but he's only interested in Lux, the Kirsten Dunst character. Yeah. Somebody who ignores him and he doesn't necessarily have a chance with, but like she kind of comes around fairly fast there. I'd like the scene where that other awkward scene where he's, he has to go uh, because she has to be chaperoned. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He <laughs> at the house. We're watching some nature program. James Woods has fallen asleep. Nobody's interested in this. And Kathleen Turner's st- like sitting right in between the two of them. And then, and then she kind of catches them like trying to flirt or something. And she goes, well, it's bedtime. And then shuts it down. He's <laughs> like, Oh, there's no way I can, can do this. And he's just trying to react to what's happened. And then, and then Kirsten Dunst has, has run around and goes into the car and just starts madly making out with him. And then goes, yeah, oh, go back before bed check or something like that. Just, gr- just great writing. I know the source material is really responsible for a lot of this, but it's just it seemed like, and and, and you're right. I, I think the criticism of it might have been that the connections that Sofia Coppola had are not the same as like Joe Q rookie director would have. Like even Wes mm-hmm. Anderson didn't have. You know, he happened to know Owen Wilson, the Wilson brothers, or whatever, as it happened, and 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 Martin Scorsese happened to luck out having Harvey Keitel respond to a an ad in the paper but she for her first film had a lot more people that she could draw upon from her family but also from Coppola's world of Hollywood but still if it's a badly written script and it's badly directed it doesn't matter how talented the group is behind it that's going to show up here and I I I just I feel like what you were talking about with Bottle Rocket seeing uh, the genius of Wes Anderson and I will admit that Wes Anderson's career is probably quite a bit more prominent than Sofia Coppola's other than Lost in Translation but I feel like I saw how great Sofia Coppola was going to be you know I I, I really like uh, I, I like Coppola I, the, the climax of the film is horrifying these boys oh, yeah. are going to go off and yeah. rescue these girls from this you know they're, they've been pulled out of school and they're just at home and, and what they encounter is a house of horrors I mean it is there's there's no way to put it and like Kirsten Dunst is so good in so many different scenes here but in that kind of that final scene where they catch her calmly you know smoking the cigarette and talking to the boys and flirting with them a little bit and then we see like she knows everything that's happening they don't have a clue that 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 is that is so well done and then we we have the sequence too that sometimes I, I wondered about but then I, I I kind of clung on to a little bit more this time with this party that happens yeah where Everywhere he's wearing gas masks because there's been some sort of a, a strange phenomenon in this neighborhood or whatever where people have to stay inside. And it's like the debutante 
type of thing in this community in Michigan, debutante type of uh, right. experience for, for this, or Sweet 16 for this girl. And like, there's a real green motif throughout. And there's these kids getting drunk and parents are kind of ignoring it and jumping into pools and saying, I'm a teenager. My life is horrible. I want to commit suicide. You know, this kind of this, this message that they've gotten. And we just see this, this, how the adults, again, in fairness, you know, there's, we see the same disconnect happening now, but how the adults don't understand and are not trying to understand their kids and why this is such a problem. And particularly in this world of privilege that they're, that they're, that they're looking at. Right. And so there's a real sadness to it, but like, what do you think about like the sequences? There's that kind of chachi looking boy who walks around, you know, this little boy in the neighborhood and he has this crush on this girl who goes to the summer goes to Switzerland for the summer and he decides, well, his, his life is over because he can't see this girl. And, and he does this, uh, he jumps off the roof of his house and lands in these bushes and gets up, puts his sunglasses back on and starts swaying back and down the street the way he does when we first see him there. Like these kind of, uh, did you like that or did you think it's off tone? No. Well, you, you probably think it's off tone because you were talking before, like maybe the humor wasn't right in, in the, in the, the movie. I, I liked it. I thought it was, well, I thought it kind of operated on a quirky level, even if it was a, even as a dark movie and even as like a, or even when it kind of lightened up a little bit, mm-hmm. it still seemed like it was operating on certain, a certain quirkiness. But yet I think it took its serious moment seriously enough. It, yeah, it, yeah. It's not as, and maybe that's why I go with Coppola, Sofia Coppola, I should say, uh, Sofia Coppola over Wes Anderson. Cause I feel, I still feel like she's connected to her characters. She's not mm-hmm. emotionally removed from them. And sometimes with Wes Anderson, I feel like he's emotionally removed. And it's almost like, yeah, okay, isn't this ironic? But it doesn't. And maybe that's why I'm a defender of this movie. Maybe some of the better Wes Anderson films. I, I, I'd go back to The Virgin Suicides over that. But for me, like that, that was all a stretch to me to come up with something that I don't like. It was a stretch for Citizen Kane, Boys in the Hood, and Virgin Suicides to come up with something that is a bit of a criticism. Is there something you kind of see as a criticism with the Virgin Suicides? I don't think there's, I mean, I enjoyed, I enjoyed uh, James Woods playing like a Abishy kind of character. And uh, I don't think so. I, if I think hard of a criticism, I guess, I don't, I'm not sure. I, it's, it's hard to say. I'm trying to think there's, there's a, something there, but I don't, I'm, tr- I'm thinking that it didn't quite have the s- substance that's like like her next movie did i think it was very i think it was a lot of style like a tremendous amount of style to it but that worked well whereas i think that like in lost in translation there was just a there's a lot more to it i feel but i see that's another movie i haven't seen in years also so that's i don't know if that's fair to say why did i enjoy bottle rocket more than this movie and i guess I connected more with Bottle Rocket more. I enjoyed the weird journey that they went on. And it seemed like they went they went further out, if that makes any sense. It's a more eccentric film. I, I don't know. It could be a thing where, well, it's interesting. It was a male novelist who, who wrote The Virgin Suicides. And very right. much, as I understand it, it's, it's from the point of view of the 40-year-old who's talking about these girls. And so it was kind of a tough one to, to come up with like a, a th- three-act structure for the, 
And so Sofia Coppola figured it out, but she really concentrated on the girls. Right, right. A little bit more than the boys observing. You know, she had respect for everybody in, in, in there. But Bottle Rocket is, you know, by a male with a male point of view. And I think The Virgin Suicides is more of a female point of view. And if, like, if you are not, you know, uh, and haven't been a uh, teenage girl, then maybe, maybe it's more of a stretch to be able to connect to the material. But somehow, like... And maybe I am connecting a little bit to the boys trying to figure out what happened a little bit more. But I, I'm just so fascinated. The, a movie I want to sort of connect this to is Picnic at Hanging Rock, the mm-hmm. uh, Peter Weir film, uh, Australian film. It has a similar type of mystery with girls about the same age. And I, both movies are just so haunting and fascinating to me. And, and that's, that's kind of where I'm landing here. And I'm not haunted or fascinated by Bottle Rocket, really. I'm kind of left with, okay, that was entertaining. Now I'm going to forget about it. I, I, and I, every once in a while, I'll, I'll think of the Virgin Suicides. Mm-hmm. I see the potential of, I, I'm not sure Kirsten Dunst has, as an adult actor has reached the potential that she did when she was a younger actor. She's, you know, she was on a season of Fargo and... She's on this other TV show about uh, a cult on, on Showtime, uh, How to Become a God in South Florida or something like that, which was... I've heard of that. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting, and, and she's the lead. So I feel like it's still there, but I still feel like I haven't seen anything that quite equaled this performance or her performance when she was quite young in Interview with the Vampire, which was kind of the only good thing about Interview with the Vampire. So I, yeah, I, I find a lot of stuff to like about this movie and I was happy to get a chance to revisit it and talk about it on the show. Why don't y'all take a look at that sign up there? See what it says? Cash for your home? You know what that is? What are y'all, Amos and Andy? Are you stepping and he's fetching? I'm talking about the message, what it stands for. It's called gentrification. It's what happens when the property value of a certain area is brought down. Huh? You listening? Yeah. They bring the property value down. They can buy the land at a lower price. Then they move all the people out, raise the property value, and sell it at a profit. Now, what we need to do is we need to keep everything in our neighborhood, everything, black. Black owned with black money. Just like the Jews, the Italians, the Mexicans, and the Koreans do. Ain't nobody from outside bringing down the property value. It's these folk shooting each other and selling that crack rock and shit. Well, how you think the crack rock gets into the country? We don't own any planes. We don't own no ships. But we are not the people who are flying and floating that shit in here. I know every time you turn on the TV, that's what you see, black people. Selling the rock, pushing the rock, pushing the rock. Yeah, I know. But that wasn't a problem as long as it was here. Wasn't a problem until it was in Iowa and it showed up on Wall Street where there are hardly any black people. Now, if you want to talk about uh, guns, why is it that there's a gun shop on almost every corner in this community? Why? Tell you why. For the same reason that there's a liquor store on almost every corner in the black community. Why? They want us to kill ourselves. You go out to Beverly Hills, you don't see that shit. But they want us to kill ourselves. Yeah, the best way you can destroy a people, you take away their ability to reproduce themselves. Who is it that's dying out here on these streets every night? Y'all. Young brothers like yourselves. What am I supposed to do? Fool roll up, try to smoke me? Shoot the motherfucker if he don't kill me first. You're doing exactly what they want you to do. You have to think, young brother, about your future. 
thank you again for being on the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. This is time number four. I get the feeling like this is the most we've sort of quasi-disagreed on a couple movies. You know, it's not like we're like coming to fisticuffs over it, but I, I suspect the points distribution is going to be quite different time around here, but hopefully we're going to part as friends at the end of this and you'll be back on the show for a, a fifth appearance. That'd be great. So how many points did you give Charles Chaplin's The Kid? Nine. How many points for Citizen Kane? Thirteen. And who's that knocking on my door? Seven. Boys in the Hood? Twelve. And Bottle Rocket? Ten. And finally, The Virgin Suicides? Nine. Yeah, we have four movies where we're pretty close and then two where we're different and you could probably predict which ones we're going to be different on. But yeah, this is um, hard. So uh, I gave the kid eight points. It, it worked for me. It's it's tough against some of these movies, but I think it's also 100 years old. It's important historically, as you said. Citizen Kane, I gave 14 points to. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Then Who's That Knocking on My Door? The debut of Scorsese. Uh, I gave that movie eight points. It worked for me in most of the scenes. There's just a few points where it kind of deviates from the main idea. Big points of Boys in the Hood, 14 points. Oh, wow. Yeah. I almost feel like I should revisit what my, you know, top films were for 1991. I think, you know, I, I remember, I believe Roger Ebert had it as number two uh, behind JFK. But I like so many of the movies from that year. It's it's, it's a tough one. But I, I really feel like it probably deserved a Best Picture nomination. Very important film. Bottle Rocket, we're going to hopefully not get too mad at each other. I gave Bottle Rocket two points. Ah. You know, ah. and it's not that I don't like Bottle Rocket. It's just I... I felt like I needed to protect some of these other movies more than Bottle Rocket. So uh, it was the only one where I was a little bit mixed on it, but I, I I can appreciate it. So Virgin Suicides, I also gave 14 points to. I am an enormous fan. So I, the, the, the three top ones for me all had the same number of points. So what that means is the movie that earned the top number of points for us was Citizen Kane with 27. Makes sense. Followed by Boys in the Hood with 26 points. Third went to The Virgin Suicides, mostly because of because I, I gave it uh, 14 points there, so 23 points. Next highest is actually The Kid with 17 points, followed by Who's That Knocking on My Door with 15 points, and in last place, the movie that I have to get rid of, predictably so because of the minuscule two points I gave it, is Bottle Rocket with only 12 points. So what would you like me to do with Bottle Rocket? You can make up your own decision on this one. It does sound like you're a fan of Bottle Rocket. I, I wouldn't be opposed to sending it your way if we, uh, if you that's want right. your own copy of it. But if there's that's something else that you'd like me to do with it, that's fine too. No, that's what I was going to say. I'd, I'd like it to get the mailed to my address so I can appreciate it. I'll be taking it in. I'll be like, much like in a kid and uh, Charlie Chaplin, I'll be taking in Bottle Rocket like it's an orphan child that's been abandoned. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, by this horrible, evil man who leads this podcast, and and someday you'll come back oh. crying and understand, having you know, knowing what you've, you're missing out on, having let go of Bottle Rocket. Travel to New Jersey. I'll just be in the streets. <laughs> I see the rain coming down, and that I'm in like some sort of uh, undershirt, and I'm screaming, <laughs> "Bottle Rocket, please come yeah. back to me!" You look at me, you know. <laughs> Even though I'll go on a big journey to get there. So, yeah, no, I, and I think if the Wes Anderson fans that listen to this show might be giving me a hard time over this one, but I, I have to be honest. And to me, it was it was the weakest of the bunch. But I sounds like for you, it was who's that not gonna that not be, uh, your weakest one there, too? Yeah, that's the weakest one. Well, in my opinion, 
You're wrong. I'm great. That's why I need to do more shows with you, Jason. You need to see the way. So, yeah. Wow, Rocket. Now, one thing we didn't mention at the top of the show, uh, again, I always like to do a plug for your podcast, A Lifetime of Hallmark. Is there anything else that uh, you'd like to plug while we're... Yes, we're going to have you on that show at some point. we got to we, we got to yeah. get that going. Yeah. Um, well, what else am I doing? You could check out my website. KurtFitzpatrick.com. That's Kurt with a K. I have some shows coming up. By the time this is this airs, my my live shows will probably have already have happened. But there's there's a uh, different stuff on there that you could you could see though. Yeah, it's always great to talk to you, and I appreciate like your willingness to come onto the show. And I think you're the only guest at this point where I'm 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 having to catch up. Because I'm currently editing our last show as we record this. Oh, okay. So yeah. You, you, you have carte blanche here. You're a regular guest now, and there's I love a, doing this. a movie you want to talk about or a, a theme or something. I'm I'm happy to to send it your way. I also want to do a shout out, and you've recently uh, connected you with Larry for rank and review. So there's a, a show coming up on um, weird '80s or crazy '80s or something that uh, you're a guest on. Uh, yeah, some kind of like whack, whacked out '80s or whatever it is. Yeah, '80s. So you've been on Rank and Review now, and uh, you can testify that it's a great show. So I want to do a plug for Rank and Review. I think my the next show I'm going to end up recording with Larry is going to be on westerns. So that'll be coming up. And again, please keep telling people about this little podcast that I have here and uh, recommending it and sharing it out to the movie fans in your life and continue to be safe and be healthy and be kind to one another. And like I always say, please uh, support local theater artists and support the movies. Thank you.